Chapter Nine, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, The Polar Journey, The Barrier Stage, Part Three. It is curious to see how depressed all our diaries became when this bad weather obtained, and how quickly we must have cheered up whenever the sun came out. There is no doubt that a similar effect was produced upon the ponies. Truth to tell, the mental strain upon those responsible was very great in these early days, and there is little of outside interest to relieve the mind. The crystal surface which was an invisible carpet yesterday becomes a shining glorious sheet of many colours to-day. The irregularities which caused you so many falls are now quite clear, and you step on or over them without a thought and when there is added some of the most wonderful scenery in the world, it is hard to recall in the enjoyment of the present how irritable and weary you felt only twenty hours ago. The whisper of the sledge, the hiss of the primus, the smell of the hoosh, and the soft folds of your sleeping-bag. How jolly they can all be, and generally were! I would that I could once again around the cooker sit, and hearken to its soft refrain, and feel so jolly fit. Instead of home life's silken chains, the uneventful round, I long to be mid snow-swept plains in harness outward bound. With the pad, pad, pad of finescoed feet, with two hundred pounds per man, not enough hoosh or biscuit to eat, well done, lads, up tent, outspan. Nelson in the South Polar Times Certainly, as we skirted these mountains range upon range during the next two marches, November 30th and December 1st, we felt we could have little cause for complaint. They brought us to latitude 82 degrees 47 minutes south, and here we left our last depot on the barrier, called the Southern Barrier Depot, with a week's ration for each returning party as usual. The man-food is enough for one week for each returning unit of four men, the next depot beyond being the middle barrier depot, seventy-three miles north. As we ought easily to do over a hundred miles a week on the return journey, there is little likelihood of our having to go on short commons if all goes well. And this was what we all felt, until we found the polar party. This was our twenty-seventh camp, and we had been out a month. It was important that we should have fine clear weather during the next few days, when we should be approaching the land. On his previous southern journey, Scott had been prevented from reaching the range of mountains which ran along to our right by a huge chasm. This phenomenon is known to geologists as a sheer crack, and is formed by the movement of a glacier away from the land which bounds it. In this case, a mass of many hundred miles of barrier has moved away from the mountains, and the disturbance is correspondingly great. Shackleton has described how he approached the gateway, as he named the passage, between Mount Hope and the mainland, by means of which he passed through on to the Beardmore Glacier. As he and his companions were exploring the way, they came upon an enormous chasm eighty feet wide and three hundred feet deep, which barred their path. Moving along to the right they found a place where the chasm was filled with snow, and here they crossed to the land some miles ahead. At our southern barrier depot, we reckoned we were some forty-four miles from this gateway, and in three more marches we hoped to be camped under this land. Christopher was shot at the depot. He was the only pony who did not die instantaneously. Perhaps Oates was not so calm as usual, for Chris was his own horse, 
though such a brute. Just as Oates fired he moved, and charged into the camp with the bullet in his head. He was caught with difficulty, nearly giving Cayon a bad bite, led back and finished. We were well rid of him. While he was strong he fought, and once the barrier had tamed him, as we were not able to do, he never pulled a fair load. He could have gone several more days, but there was not enough pony food to take all the animals forward. We began to wonder if we had done right to leave so much behind. Each pony provided at least four days' food for the dog-teams, some of them more, and there was quite a lot of fat on them, even on Jehu. This was comforting as going to prove that their hardships were not too great. Also we put the undercut into our own hoosh, and it was very good, though we had little oil to cook it. We had been starting later each night in order that the transition from night to day marching might be gradual, for we intended to march by day when we started pulling up the glacier, and there were no ponies to rest when the sun was high. It may be said, therefore, that our next march was on December 2nd. Before we started, Scott walked over to Bowers. "'I have come to a decision which will shock you.' Victor was to go at the end of the march, because pony food was running so short. Birdie wrote at the end of the day, "'He did a splendid march, and kept the head all day, and, as usual, marched into camp first, pulling over four hundred and fifty pounds easily. It seemed an awful pity to have to shoot a great strong animal, and it seemed like the irony of fate to me, as I had been down for over-provisioning the ponies with needless excess of food, and the drastic reductions had been made against my strenuous opposition up to the last.' It is poor satisfaction to me to know that I was right now that my horse is dead. Good old Victor. He has always had a biscuit out of my ration, and he ate his last before the bullet sent him to his rest. Here ends my second horse in eighty-three degrees south. Not quite so tragically as my first, when the sea-ice broke up, but nonetheless I feel sorry for a beast that has been my constant companion and care for so long. He has done his share in our undertaking, anyhow and may I do my share as well when I get into harness myself. The snow has started to fall over his bleak resting-place, and it looks like a blizzard. The outlook is dark, stormy, and threatening. Indeed, it had been a dismal march into a blank white wall, and the ponies were sinking badly in the snow, leaving holes a full foot deep. The temperature was plus seventeen degrees, and the flakes of snow melted when they lay on the dark colours of the tents and our furs, after building the pony walls, water was running down our windproofs. I note, we are doing well on pony meat, and go to bed very content. Notwithstanding the fact that we could not do more than heat the meat by throwing it into the pemmican, we found it sweet and good, though tough. The man-hauling party consisted of Lieutenant Evans and Lashley, who had lost their motors, and Atkinson and Wright, who had lost their ponies. They were really quite hungry by now, and most of us pretty well looked forward to our meals and kept a biscuit to eat in our bags if we could. The pony meat, therefore, came as a relief. I think we ought to have depoted more of it on the cairns. As it was, what we did not eat was given to the dogs. With some tins of extra oil and a depoted pony, the polar party would probably have got home in safety. On December 3rd we roused out at 2.30am. It was thick and snowy. As we breakfasted, the blizzard started from the southeast and was soon blowing force nine, a full gale, with heavy drift. The strongest wind I have known here in summer. It was impossible to start. 
but we turned out and made up the pony walls in a heavy drift, one of them being blown down three times. By 1.30 p.m. the sun was shining, and the land was clear. We started at two, with what we thought was Mount Hope showing up ahead, but soon great snow-clouds were banking up, and in two hours we were walking in a deep gloom, which made it difficult to find the track made by the man-hauling party ahead. By the time we reached the cairn, which was always built at the end of the first four miles, it was blowing hard from the north-north-west of all the unlikely quarters of the compass. Bowers and Scott were on ski. I put on my windproof blouse and nosed out the track for two miles, when we suddenly came upon the tent of the leading party. They had camped owing to the difficulty of steering a course in such thick weather. The ponies, however, with the wind abaft of the beam, were going along splendidly, and Scott thought it worth while to shove on. We therefore carried on another four miles, making ten in all, a good half-march, before we camped. On ski it was simply ripping, except for the inability to see anything at all. With the wind behind, and the good sliding surface made by the wind-hardened snow, one fairly slithered along. Camping was less pleasant, as it was blowing a gale by that time. We are all in our bags again now, with a good hot meal inside one, and blow high or blow low, one might be in a worse place than a reindeer bag. It was all right for the people on ski, and this in itself gave us a certain sense of grievance, but things had not been so easy with the ponies, who were sinking very deeply in places, while we ourselves were sinking well over our ankles. This day we began to cross the great undulations in the barrier, with the crests some mile apart, which here mark the approach to the land. We had built the walls to the north of the ponies on camping, because the wind was from that direction, but by breakfast on December 4th it was blowing a thick blizzard from the south-east. We began to feel bewildered by these extraordinary weather changes, and not a little exasperated too. Again we could not march, and again we had to dig out the sledges and ponies, and to move them all round to the other side of the walls, which we had partly to rebuild. Oh, for the simple man-hauling life, was our thought, and, poor helpless beasts, this is no country for livestock. By this time we could not see the neighbouring tents for the drift. The situation was not improved by the fact that our tent doors, the tents having been pitched for the strong north wind then blowing, were now facing the blizzard, and sheets of snow entered with each individual. The man-hauling party came up just before the worst of the blizzard started. The dogs alone were comfortable, buried deep beneath the drifted snow. The sailors began to debate who was the Jonah. They said he was the cameras. The great blizzard was brewing all about us. But at midday, as though a curtain was rolled back, the thick snow fog cleared off, while at the same time the wind fell calm, and a great mountain appeared almost on top of us. Far away to the south-east we could distinguish, by looking very carefully, a break in the level barrier horizon, a new mountain which we reckoned must be at least in latitude eighty-six degrees, and very high. Towards it the ranges stretched away, peak upon peak, range upon range, as far as the eye could see. The mountains surpassed anything I have ever seen. Beside the least of these giants Ben Nevis would be a mere mound, and yet they are so immense as to dwarf each other. They are intersected at every turn with mighty glaciers and icefalls, and eternally ice-filled valleys that defy description. So clear was everything that every rock seemed to stand out, and the effect of the sun as he came round, between us and the mountains, was to make the scene still more beautiful. Altogether we marched eleven miles this day, and camped right in front of the gateway, which we reckoned to be some thirteen miles away. 
we saw no crevasses but crossed ten or twelve very large undulations and estimated that the dips between them were twelve to fifteen feet mount hope was bigger than we expected and beyond it stretching out into the barrier as far as we could see was a great white line of jagged edges the chaos of pressure which this vast glacier makes as it flows into the comparatively stationary ice of the barrier my own pony michael was shot after we came into camp he was as attractive a little beast as we had his light weight helped him on soft surfaces but his small hoofs let him in farther than most and i notice in scott's diary that on november nineteenth the ponies were sinking half-way to the hock and michael once or twice almost to the hock itself a highly strung spirited animal his off days took the form of fidgets during which he would be constantly trying to stop and eat snow and then rush forward to catch up the other ponies life was a constant source of wonder to him and no movement in the camp escaped his notice before we had been long on the barrier he developed mischievous habits and became a rope-eater and gnawer of other ponies fringes as we called the coloured tassels we hung over their eyes to ward off snow-blindness however he was by no means the only culprit and he lost his own fringe to nobby quite early in the proceedings it was not that he was hungry for he never quite finished his own feed at any rate he enjoyed the few weeks before he died pricking up his ears and getting quite excited when anything happened and the arrival of the dog-teams each morning after he had been tethered sent him to bed with much to dream of and i must say his master dreamed pretty regularly too michael was killed right in front of the gateway on december fourth just before the big blizzard which though we did not know it was on the point of breaking upon us and he was untying his cloth and chewing up everything he could reach to the last it was decided after we camped and he had his feed already on mears reported that he had no more food for the dogs he walked away and rolled in the snow on the way down not having done so when we got in he was just like a naughty child all the way and pulled all out he has been a good friend and has a good record eighty two degrees twenty three minutes south he was a bit done today the blizzard had knocked him gallant little michael as we got into our bags the mountain tops were fuzzy with drift we wanted one clear day to get across the chasm one short march and the ponies task was done their food was nearly finished scott wrote that night we are practically through with the first stage of our journey tuesday december fifth camp thirty noon we awoke this morning to a raging howling blizzard the blows we have had hitherto have lacked the very fine powdering snow that is special feature of the blizzard today we have it fully developed after a minute or two in the open one is covered from head to foot the temperature is high so that what falls or drives against one sticks the ponies heads tails legs and all parts not protected by their rugs are covered with ice the animals are standing deep in snow the sledges are almost covered and huge drifts above the tents we have had breakfast rebuilt the walls and are now again in our bags one cannot see the next tent let alone the land what on earth does such weather mean at this time of year it is more than our share of ill fortune i think but the luck may turn yet eleven p m it has blown hard all day with the quite the greatest snowfall i remember the drifts about the tent are simply huge the temperature was minus twenty seven this forenoon and rose to plus thirty one in the afternoon 
at which time the snow melted, as it fell on anything but the snow, and as a consequence there are pools of water on everything, the tents are wet through, also the wind clothes, night boots, etc., water drips from the tent poles and door, lies on the floor-cloth, soaks the sleeping-bags, and makes everything pretty wretched. If a cold snap follows before we have had time to dry our things, we shall be mighty uncomfortable. Yet after all it would be humorous enough, if it were not for the seriousness of the delay. We can't afford that, and it's real hard luck that it should come at such a time. The wind shows signs of easing down, but the temperature does not fall, and the snow is as wet as ever, not promising signs of abatement. Wednesday, December 6th, Camp 30, noon. Miserable, utterly miserable. We have camped in the slough of despond. The tempest rages with unabated violence. The temperature has gone to plus 33 degrees. Everything in the tent is soaking. People returning from the outside look exactly as though they had been in a heavy shower of rain. They drip pools on the floor-cloth. The snow is steadily climbing higher about the walls, ponies, tents, and sledges. The ponies look utterly desolate. Oh, but this is too crushing, and we are only twelve miles from the glacier. A hopeless feeling descends on one, and is hard to fight off. What immense patience is needed for such occasions! Bowers describes the situation as follows. It is blowing a blizzard such as one might expect to be driven at us by all the powers of darkness. It may be interesting to describe it, as it is my first experience of a really warm blizzard, and I hope to be troubled by cold ones only, or at least moderate ones only, in future, as regards temperature. When I swung the thermometer this morning, I looked and looked again, but unmistakably the temperature was plus thirty-three degrees Fahrenheit, above freezing point, out of the sun's direct rays, for the first time since we came down here. What this means to us nobody can conceive. We try to treat it as a huge joke, but our wretched condition might be amusing to read of it later. We are wet through, our tents are wet, our bags, which are our life to us and the objects of our greatest care, are wet. The poor ponies are soaked and shivering far more than they would be ordinarily, in a temperature fifty degrees lower. Our sledges, the parts that are dug out, are wet. Our food is wet, everything on and around and about us is the same, wet as ourselves and our cold, clammy clothes. Water trickles down the tent poles, and only forms icicles in contact with the snow floor. The warmth of our bodies has formed a snow bath in the floor for each of us to lie in. This is a nice little catch-water for stray streams to run into before they freeze. This they cannot do while a warm human lies there, so they remain liquid, and the accommodating bag mops them up. When we go out to do the duties of life, fill the cooker, etc., for the next meal, dig out or feed the ponies or anything else, we are bunged up with snow. Not the driving sand-like snow we are used to, but great slushy flakes that run down in water immediately and stream off you. The drifts are tremendous, the rest of the show is indescribable. I feel most for the unfortunate animals, and I'm thankful that poor old Victor is spared this. I mended a pair of half-mitts today, and we are having two meals instead of three. This idleness, when one is simply jumping to go on, is bad enough for most, but must be worse for Captain Scott. I feel glad that he has Dr. Bill, Wilson, in his tent. There is something always so reassuring about Bill. He comes out best in adversity. Thursday, December 7th, Camp 30. The storm continues, and the situation is now serious. One small feed remains for the ponies after today, so that we must either march tomorrow, 
or sacrifice the animals. That is not the worst. With the help of the dogs we could get on without doubt. The serious part is that we have this morning started our summit rations, that is to say the food calculated from the glacier depot has been begun. The first supporting party can only go on a fortnight from this date, and so forth. The day was just as warm and wetter, much wetter. The temperature was plus 35.5 degrees, and our bags were like sponges. The huge drifts had covered everything, including most of the tents, the pony walls and sledges. At intervals we dug our way out and dug up the wretched ponies and got them on to the top again. Henceforward our full ration will be 16 ounces of biscuits, 12 ounces of pemmican, 2 ounces of butter, 0.57 ounces of cocoa, 3 ounces of sugar, and 0.86 ounces of tea. This is the summit ration, total 34.43 ounces, with a little onion powder and salt. I am all for this. Seaman Evans and the others are much regretting the loss of chocolate, raisins and cereals. For the first week up the glacier we are to go one biscuit short to provision Mears on the way back. The motors depoted too much, and Mears has been brought on far farther than his orders were originally bringing him. Originally he was to be back at Hut Point on December 10th. The dogs, however, are getting all the horse that is good for them, and are very fit. He has to average twenty-four miles a day going back. Michael is well out of this. We are now eating him. He was in excellent condition and tastes very good, though tough. By this time there was little sleep left for us as we lay in our sleeping bags. Three days generally see these blizzards out, and we hoped much from Friday, December 8th. But when we breakfasted at 10am, we were getting into day-marching routine. Wind and snow were monotonously the same. The temperature rose to plus 34.3 degrees. These temperatures and those recorded by Mears on his way home must be a record for the interior of the barrier. So far as we were concerned it did not much matter now whether it was plus 40 degrees or plus 34 degrees. Things did look really gloomy that morning. But at noon there came a gleam of comfort. The wind dropped and immediately we were out plunging about, always up to our knees in soft downy snow and often much farther. First we shifted our tents, digging them up with the greatest care that the shovel might not tear them. The valances were encased in solid ice from the water which had run down. Then we started to find our sledges which were about four feet down. They were dragged out and everything on them was wringing wet. There was a gleam of sunshine, which soon gave place to snow and gloom, but we started to make experiments in haulage. Four men on ski managed to move a sledge with four others sitting upon it. Nobby was led out, but sank to his belly. As for the drifts, I saw Oates standing behind one, and only his head appeared, and this was all loose snow. We are all sitting round now, after some tea. It is much better than getting into the bags. I can hardly think that the ponies can pull on, but Titus thinks they can pull to-morrow. All the food is finished, and what they have had to-day was only what they would not eat out of their last feed yesterday. It is a terrible end, driven to death on no more food, then to be cut up, poor devils. I have swapped the little minister with Silas Wright for Dante's Inferno. The steady patter of the falling snow upon the tents was depressing as we turned in, but the temperature was below freezing. The next morning, Saturday, December 9th, we turned out to a cloudy, snowy day at 5.30am. By 8.30 we had hauled the sledges some way out of the camp and started to lead out the ponies. The horses could hardly move, sank up to their bellies and finally lay down. They had to be driven, lashed on. 
It was a grim business. My impressions of that day are of groping our way, for Bowers and I were pulling a light sledge ahead to make the track, through a vague white wall. First a confused crowd of men behind us gathered round the leading pony sledge, pushing it forward, the poor beast barely able to struggle out of the holes it made as it plunged forward. The others were induced to follow, and after a start had been made, the regular man-hauling party went back to fetch their load. There was not one man there who would willingly have caused pain to a living thing, but what else was to be done? We could not leave our pony depot in that bog. Hour after hour we plugged on, and we dare not halt for lunch. We knew that we could never start again. After crossing many waves, huge pressure ridges suddenly showed themselves all round, and we got on to a steep rise, with the coastal chasm on our right hand appearing as a great dip full of enormous pressure. Scott was naturally worried about crevasses, and though we knew there was a way through, the finding of it in the gloom was most difficult. For two hours we zigzagged about, getting forward, it is true, but much bewildered, and once at any rate almost bogged. Scott joined us, and we took off our ski so as to find the crevasses, and if possible a hard way through. Every step we sank about fifteen inches, and often above our knees. Meanwhile Snatcher was saving the situation in snowshoes, and led the line of the ponies. Snippets nearly fell back into a big crevasse, into which his hindquarters fell, but they managed to unharness him and scramble him out. I do not know how long we had been going when Scott decided to follow the chasm. We found a big dip with hard ice underneath, and it was probably here that we made the crossing. We could now see the ring of pressure behind us. Almost it was decided to make the depot here, but the ponies still plugged on in the most plucky way, though they had to be driven. Scott settled to go as far as they could be induced to march, and they did wonderfully. We had never thought that they would go a mile, but painfully they marched for eleven hours without a long halt, and covered a distance which we then estimated at seven miles. But our sledge-meters were useless, being clogged with soft snow, and we afterwards came to believe that the distance was not so great, probably not more than five. When we had reached a point some two miles from the top of the snow divide which fills the gateway, we camped, thankful to rest, but more thankful still that we need drive those weary ponies no more. Their rest was near. It was a horrid business, and the place was known as Shambles Camp. Oates came up to Scott as he stood in the shadow of Mount Hope. "'Well, I congratulate you, Titus,' said Wilson. "'And I thank you, Titus,' said Scott. And that was the end of the barrier stage. End of chapter 9, part 3